Hi, and welcome. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John Williams, who's a Professor of International Relations at Durham University, and we're going to be discussing lethal autonomous weapon systems, which I'm really excited for. It should be both interesting and potentially quite concerning, which is why it's a conversation that needs to be had. But before we get into all of that, Professor Williams, could you just start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your own research? Uh, yeah, of course. Thanks very much indeed for having me. It's lovely, lovely to be here. So, yes, as you said, um, I'm Professor of International Relations here at uh, Durham University. My my main one of my main research interests is around uh, the impacts of military technologies uh, upon um, ethical and political and social norms uh, related to the use of force. So some of that includes brushing up against uh, areas such as international humanitarian law. Uh, I'll stress I'm not a lawyer. Um, and more widely, uh, questions about how technological advances are changing our understanding of the nature and purpose of the use of force in international politics. Okay, fantastic. So a lot of your research focuses on lethal autonomous weapon systems, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, a lot of our listeners will have heard of drones or more formally unmanned aerial vehicles. Um, but on lethal autonomous weapon systems are a little bit different. Could you just explain to us um, what they are and where we're at with them in the current context? Okay, sure. Um, I mean, the idea is, the idea of defining these things is quite complicated. So the most common definition, which was uh, comes from the, from the Pentagon, the United States Defense Department, identifies systems that once initiated can identify, select and engage targets without further human intervention. And we've had, we've had some systems that can do things like that in terms of shooting down incoming ballistic missiles or incoming anti-ship missiles for the best part of 40 years. Um, and they're normally pretty uncontroversial because they, they target munitions, um, they're generally defensive in purpose, and they operate in very specific ways. So they have very carefully defined parameters. Um, their programming can't be altered by the machines themselves. Uh, they don't learn in any kind of meaningful sense. They are so for a lot of people think of these as automatic rather than autonomous, but that's a very fuzzy line. Um, so where we, so we've had those for a long time and hardly anybody wants to get rid of them. Um, but we are moving towards systems which, as we know from AI and civilians, which have much more, much more extensive learning capabilities. Um, so systems which will be able to respond independently uh, to complicated inputs uh, and to monitor and assess their own performance and change that performance. Now that might lead us to a position where we can have uh, systems which can use lethal force against human beings um, and can operate in much more complicated environments than say trying to shoot down an incoming anti-ship missile on the high seas where, where typically you don't, have, you don't have too many civilians in the way or um, any other kind of factors that make life harder for, for differentiating between permitted and unpermitted targets. So yeah, we're, uh, we don't have any deployed autonomous weapon systems that look like this more kind of advanced learning sorts of systems, for instance, but we're, there are quite a lot of uh, uh, test systems, um, some of which look like, look like drones that we're, we've become familiar with, which are showing quite high levels of, of very specific forms of artificial intelligence. Um, so for instance, uh, the United States has a, a kind of advanced drone testing platform called X-47B and that's shown itself a number of years ago now to be capable of um, taking off and landing on the deck of an aircraft carrier on, at sea. That's quite a complicated thing to be able to do um, autonomously. But yeah, looking forward, it's, it's into areas of, of developing those, 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 those capabilities to identify, select and engage targets without further human intervention and where those targets start to become human beings, um, that the, most of the controversy lies. So there's obviously a lot of debate about this. It's like it's very much an ongoing debate and we've got um, a whole range of views on this from the UN Secretary General who's said they should be banned along with a lot of AI researchers who agree with him. Um, could you just talk us through what the debate looks like surrounding, surrounding this? Yeah, so debate over regulation um, sort of sits along a, a, along a, um, a continuum that perhaps has three main points on it. So, as you say, at one end there are those who want to want to ban lethal autonomous weapon systems before they are developed and deployed. Um, as I say, depending on how you define a lethal autonomous weapon system, they might be 40 years too late. Um, 
but certainly bands are, are, are one of one area where there's a lot of activity in, in civil society. You mentioned the, 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 the sort of group of AI researchers and other leading scientists, uh, for instance. Um, and quite a lot of the challenge of banning these things is working out what exactly it is you're banning. So are you banning a particular form of technology? Um, are you banning a particular particular types of algorithms or algorithmic developments which would make these systems um, achieve a level of autonomy that, that's defined as unacceptable? Or are you trying to, to ban their use of force in certain sorts of ways? So systems which target munitions are fine, systems that target human beings are not. Um, so a ban is one area. Um, the second is, a, is a, a position which is quite widespread amongst um, the international community, perhaps the majority position uh, amongst states, which is the need for some kind of arms control or, or other international treaty that will regulate the development and deployment of these systems. That tends to build a lot on existing regulations around, for example, the development of new weapon systems, which means that uh, weapon systems must be capable of differentiating between permitted and, and forbidden targets, um, which is a real challenge uh, for, for, for an algorithm. So for some people, there's a yeah. For some states, there's a there's a commitment to trying to develop a new international treaty-based regime to to regulate and monitor uh, such systems. And then I guess the most permissive position would be those uh, who see that current international humanitarian law, as it's called, the the law of armed conflict, should be sufficient in in and of itself uh, to control to control lethal autonomous weapons. That they're essentially they're nothing. They're not categorically different from already existing forms of weapons. They, they don't mark some kind of break point or step change in military technology and what we have already uh, to govern, govern the use of force uh, in warfare will, be, will work just fine for them as well. And which sorts of countries are we are we talking about in terms of these positions? Um, I think the the second position, not an outright ban, but certainly some kind of uh, treaty, is supported by the non-aligned movement. So that includes countries like Venezuela, um, a lot of developing countries as well. What about in terms of the third position you mentioned? Yeah, so so there are relatively few states that that take that position. Interestingly, the um, until yeah, the, it's it's been the position of the United Kingdom government for a, for a while. Um, the UK government's long had a, uh, a, a something of an outlier stance on autonomous weapons. Um, so, for instance, it developed it used to rely upon the definition of autonomous weapons, which was vastly more demanding than the one that the Pentagon used that I mentioned previously. Um, so, the UK used to have a, a position that it was only an autonomous weapon system if it was if it was self-aware. Um, and capable of situational awareness, at least the equivalent of a human being. Now that's a that's a massively demanding standard that we're we're probably decades away from if it's ever achievable technologically. Um, and certainly, the the position of the UK government in international negotiations in Geneva, for instance, has by and large been that uh, existing international humanitarian law will work just fine with autonomous weapons. Um, so yeah, the UK is, is something of, a, of, an, of an outlier in that regard. Uh, and like you say, a lot of states, particularly uh, states such, represented by the non-aligned movement, but not exclusively them, uh, have sat in this, this central position, which I think is, is the most common. Uh, but there are a group of states, you know, perhaps 30 or so of them, uh, which have come out in favour of a ban. And that includes some, uh, some European states, such as Austria, for instance. And I guess the the biggest players that we want to watch here are the US and China. Whereabouts are they on this spectrum? Uh, so yeah, so they certainly are, are two of the leaders here. The Russians are also very heavily engaged in this sort of technological development. Israel has, has long had and is perhaps arguably the technological leader uh, in this sorts of in these sorts of arenas. Um, but clearly it, it doesn't operate at the scale uh, that the US, China, and uh, to a lesser extent, Russia do. Um, the, the US position is that at present, it's, it's sort of committed to the idea that it would only, it wouldn't deploy autonomous weapon systems where, um, without some kind of human oversight. Um, and there's a debate in, in, the, in this field we'll, we'll touch on later, I expect, about the idea of meaningful human control, um, which has become a, a sort of central reference point in a lot of these regulatory debates. But the US has a position, um, and it's had it for a while now, that 
you don't necessarily have to have a human in the loop, as it's called, so a human who, who makes the decision about when an autonomous weapon system would actually engage in the use of force. But they would have to be monitored. They would have to be on the loop monitoring. Um, so the US thinks that that's sufficient to enable it to comply with international humanitarian law. Um, the US is not particularly keen on a treaty to regulate these systems. Um, it's, it, it doesn't think that's particularly workable, but it's also not in the US interest to do so. Um, China's position has, uh, has been interesting in that China has proposed uh, a ban, uh, in, but it, it rests upon a definition um, of autonomous weapon systems, which is pretty idiosyncratic. It's not a definition that I've, I've really seen anybody else um, propose or uh, support China strongly on, on the definition it's proposed because its, its definition requires that an autonomous weapon system is both incapable of discriminating between permitted and forbidden targets and is incapable of being turned off uh, once it's been initiated. So it has a, a like I say, a pretty, a pretty idiosyncratic definition which would render any such systems clearly illegal under existing international law. Um, so yeah, both those states are, are, are committing substantial amounts of money uh, to these projects, uh, showing significant technological advance, although we know much more about the American technological advances than we do about the Chinese ones, for instance. Um, and both have an approach to some kind of international regulatory standard which uh, looks like it's, it's more permissive or where it is claiming to be highly restrictive, uh, such as the Chinese ban proposal. Uh, it rests upon a definition that doesn't really, that just doesn't work. Um, it doesn't capture anything terribly useful uh, about the systems. The things, that, the things that you would ban under the Chinese proposal would be are already banned. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind of three broad categories of position there. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of people, when they think of lethal autonomous weapons as something very uncomfortable or strongly objectionable, that, that, that that's how they immediately respond to it. So the idea of, of banning it seems to a lot of people to be on the face of it initially quite a good idea. So. Could you just talk us through a little bit what the position or the different positions of the people who want to ban it are in terms of um, exactly why they think we should ban it? Yeah, so within, within the kind of ban camp, then I think we can, uh, we can perhaps again identify perhaps three particular positions. The first and most straightforward one is that there is, there is just something fundamentally immoral uh, about, uh, about a machine killing human beings that having the decision to use lethal force against human beings uh, being taken by an algorithm offends against something profoundly serious about, uh, in, in, about the moral value of human life. Um, so this is quite often discussed in relation to the idea of, of dignity, for instance, uh, and the, the notion of an international human right, for instance, to, to dignity, and that dignity in human life involves dignity in human death, um, and that a death that is brought about by an algorithm um, is an undignified one. So there are quite a lot of people who, who have a, a profound moral um, objection to the idea of, of an autonomous weapon system that's able to kill people. Um, so a, a second position arises from those who, who believe that the, the technological possibilities um, are, are too limited for these systems to ever meet the existing standards that we have um, for the permissible use of lethal force in war. So we have a, a a big body of international law and a very long tradition of moral and political uh, and legal thinking about when you can and can't uh, use lethal force and who who you can and can't target. Um, and those are very complicated judgments to make. Um, we talk about the ideas of discrimination, for instance, between permitted and forbidden targets and proportionality in terms of the, the, the level of force that you can use. Um, and those judgments require immense uh, would, would require you know, immense technological skill um, and an ability to to learn on the part of an, of an artificial intelligence. So there are those who just believe that that's an unattainable standard, that um, despite the, the optimism of, of some in the, some technologists and some, um, some people who advocate for autonomous weapons, uh, who believe that you can essentially create a program for the Geneva Conventions, um, there are plenty who, who think that that's just technologically implausible and therefore a ban is necessary. Uh, for that reason, and then I guess finally is is a group of people who um, who fear the consequent the wider 
consequences for international peace and security of the development of autonomous weapons systems. Um, so if, if the ambitions that some have for these systems in terms of their ability to, to radically change um, the political and strategic environment um, in which states would operate come to fruition, then you run the risk of having systems which may be capable of acting at speeds that no human can, can match, um, so that the risks of, of um, decisions being taken at a speed that uh, people simply can't control is one, one risk here. The other is that such systems may become very cheap um, and very wide, and they may therefore proliferate very widely, uh, creating all sorts of uh, political instabilities. Um, and there's also the sense that, uh, also the risk involved that um, if states do do feel that they have a, a probably temporary um, strategic advantage through the acquisition of autonomous weapons systems, they may feel that this is an opportunity for them to take advantage of that uh, of that leading of that leadership that they have, um, and we will see a, a weakening of the kinds of mechanisms such as deterrence um, that dissuade states from using force against one another. So you have an argument from a moral basis, you can have an argument from a, uh, a technological inability to, to meet existing standards basis, and you can have an argument for a ban also on the idea that these things represent potentially profound threats to, um, to international peace and security uh, and uh, international political stability. That's really interesting. So in terms of, if we just focus on the first of those, which is the idea that it's there's something wrong about about a machine or an algorithm making the decision to kill someone. Um, could you just talk through a bit more how those kinds of arguments are made? I think um, Christoph Haynes makes um, one of the most influential examples of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so Haynes, as you say, he's a, um, an international, very eminent international lawyer, uh, has also been a UN special rapporteur in the past. And he, he draws directly upon this idea of a of dignity, um, that, that there is a, a right to dignity and that um, that involves how one dies as well as how one lives uh, and that there is something profoundly undignified in, the, in, in having your life taken, taken away by an algorithm. Um, I had, I had an, an, an interesting example from a, from a student recently in a, a seminar discussion on this a, a couple of weeks ago when um, he suggested that there's, a, there's an, an analogy here with the way in which states that utilize capital punishment um, will routinely yeah, routinely have debates about what does does and doesn't constitute a, an appropriate way to execute people who have been convicted of capital crimes um, and uh, yeah, for example we've seen uh, within the United States over uh, over recent years uh, ideas about whether or not use of lethal injection uh, and in particular which combinations of drugs that may be used to uh, in lethal injections uh, would be offensive to to the dignity of the person being executed, um, and it's uh, if we think more a kind of longer historical run, uh, states which have moved away from forms of execution, uh, which are deliberately designed to inflict maximum levels of pain uh, or humiliation uh, upon upon those being killed, are also often seen as being important steps in. Um, enabling people to live a dignified life and for those um, who are going to be killed um, in some deliberate way and uh, for, for them to, to experience a dignified death. Um, so that, anal that analogy is an interesting one um, and it's I think important to, to those debates about the idea that how we die as human beings matters. Um, we may even see you know, echoes of this in, the, in, in current debates about um, assisted dying um, for people who are experiencing Experiencing terminal illness and potentially you know, serious pain and suffering. Um, so there's a lot of ways in which in which philosophy uh, and ethics thinks about the dignity of death. Um, and as I say, for some, having that having that carried out, having those decisions made by a machine, um, is a line that should not and must not be crossed. Haynes, um, as I understand the paper. Um, also has this idea, um, was, it's kind of linked to that, but this idea that because life has value, the only way to um, reflect that fact is for somebody or something with moral responsibility 
to take it away. So if you're going to take away life, you can only respect its value if that's taken away by another moral agent, which means it has to be done by a human being. Um, I just wonder what you what you thought about that. Yeah, I think that's I mean, it's a powerful argument that Haynes makes, and it it's, speaks really deeply to a to a lot of our moral intuitions um, and to a lot of uh, you know, a lot of of traditions of philosophical and religious thought and teaching about about human life. It, it's it also speaks to one of the the, the central debates that we see in uh, about regulating autonomous weapons, which is which is what's often labelled the accountability gap. Um, that, as you say, if a human life is to be ended, then it should be ended by an accountable moral agent, that somebody, which at the moment means a human being, uh, that somebody should, it should be possible to hold somebody to account for that, for, for that death, um, where that death breaches rules in some way or other. And clearly, directly holding to account an artificial intelligence or a, a lethal autonomous weapon system is pretty meaningless. And whilst we have mechanisms mechanisms such as chain of command which people are very familiar with usually in military circles that the person who gave the order is the person who's responsible um, at least to, to a significant extent um, that those commanding officers have responsibility for and are accountable for the actions of their subordinates that there may be limits to the to the ability of a structure like chain of command um, to achieve proper accountability for the for actions of lethal autonomous weapon systems and that may be particularly true when those autonomous weapon systems um, make mistakes, um, whether that's as a result of a, a failure in their programming or whether that's just as a result of, of the what are usually called normal accidents, that all complex technological systems go wrong. There are normal accidents. We've seen this in relation to things like self-driving cars, for instance, um, but all sorts of other complex technological systems that if it is just a normal accident, then do we run the risk of, of potentially nobody being held to account? Okay, so we've got some very, on the face of them at least, plausible arguments that there's something ethically objectionable about um, lethal autonomous weapons and maybe that we should ban them. There's a lot in the international community who think this is just impractical. Why might we think that? And do you, do you think they're right about that? Um, yeah, on the whole, I'm quite pessimistic about the plausibility of a ban. Um, whether you could effect sufficiently accurately define what it is you're banning um, is a real is a real challenge. Um, so there, I think there are some drafting kind of problems in, in, in a practical sense here. But more widely, I think that the, the, the pressures that are usually seen um, as leading us towards the development of autonomous weapon systems are very powerful ones and they're ones that the historical record suggests human beings are not especially good at resisting um, and indeed even come to see as being irresistible as being um, facts about the world which which so constrain our choices um, as to make certain kinds of political options like banning autonomous weapons appear impossible or impractical or even deeply unwise um, so i've kind of hinted at, hinted at one already in terms of, of the discussions of international peace and security that we um, we're very familiar in how we think about uh, the operation of, of the international system with with a notion usually understood as the security dilemma uh, which is the idea that the acquisition of new military technologies by potential opponents, um, whilst those opponents may well tell us that this is for purely defensive purposes, creates a powerful uh, pressure upon upon the upon the other side, who may well fear well hang about. They may be they may have in defensive intentions at present, but those intentions may change over time. The capabilities of those systems may give them an, an offensive advantage as well as providing defensive capability. So we need to take measures uh, in order to to protect ourselves against uh, against their acquisition of this new technology or the expansion of their capabilities, um, and of course that tends to then trigger exactly the same response in the first side, and you have a you have an idea of a of a security dilemmas as contributing towards the tendencies that we see in international politics to arms racing to arms racing, and there are lots of historical instances that are often discussed in these terms, whether that's the the extraordinary build-up of nuclear weapons arsenals by the US and the Soviets um, in the Cold War, or back to, say, the Anglo-German 
naval arms race in the period prior to, to World War One, um, and lots of others. There's a you know, long list of potential examples we could we could think about here. So for some people, autonomous weapon systems represent exactly that kind of security dilemma risk. There was a, a RAND report published last year, for example, uh, for the US Air Force, uh, which which pretty much said that as as long as as long as Beijing and Moscow are pursuing such systems or potentially pursuing such systems, then the United States has no choice. Um, it, it cannot, to use their words, it cannot seed the field. Um, you know, the, the, to do so would be extraordinarily strategically irresponsible. Um, so that dynamic is, is, a, is a powerful one and a lot of the way that we think about international peace and security reflects that idea of a security dilemma. Um, much less widely discussed, but I think probably at least at least as important is the idea that um, you know, artificial intelligence is becoming increasingly important to all sorts of factors of everyday life. Um, it's already doing performing military functions, even if these aren't these aren't connected directly to the use of force. It's doing intelligence analysis functions, but in in our lives, in civilian life, artificial intelligence is central to, or increasingly central to to social media. Um, it's you know what what runs your Spotify playlist. Um, it's crucial to growing amounts of e-commerce. Um, there is all sorts of opportunities for artificial intelligence to play really important and potentially highly beneficial roles in medicine or in law um, or in lots of arenas. And stopping that from becoming um, militarized in some way, shape or form, argue many people, is just impossible. Um, and that's often linked to, although the words rarely used, that's often linked to capitalism. Um, that there have been estimates that the development of artificial intelligence has could add trillions to the value of the global economy. It could make major contributions to international development. Um, and it is already central to the profitability of major corporations like Facebook. Um, so that logic of economic growth, that logic of technological advance as critical for economic growth, and the impossibility of stopping AI from having military utility and becoming military militarily applied um, is also sometimes a part of the, the pessimism about the, the possibility of a ban. Okay, so we're in a situation where a ban seems unlikely, no matter whether we might desire it. So the next question is we need some kind of legal framework to try to control this and just regulate it so there are lots of different issues we we could talk about here let's start with some practical issues with developing this kind of legal framework it's quite a difficult thing to avoid the proliferation of could you just explain to us a little bit about that yeah i'll try i mean the, the ways in which these systems could proliferate are, is is really diverse um, and it depends a lot upon the sorts of systems that, that emerge so one way is that yes you can the prolifer you know the, the, the crucial parts of artificial intelligence is much less to do with hardware which is what we've traditionally focused upon in terms of trying to stop the proliferation of other sorts of weapon systems so if we think about the proliferation of nuclear weapons for instance then trying to make sure that states uh, find it very, very hard to access the fissile material that, that is at the core of a nuclear weapon is one way that we've done that. We've also tried to prevent the proliferation of certain forms of technologies that enable states to enrich um, um, materials like plutonium or uranium uh, to a level where they could be used for bomb making. Um, so there's hardware aspects to most of the current proliferation uh, weapons proliferation systems whereas when you're talking about autonomous weapons the the crucial component is is software you know it's the ai it's the algorithms so there's a, a real challenge a real challenge there how would you these aren't things that you can kind of count or keep under keep under some sort of secure arrangement where you um, as we do with uh, with monitoring arrangements uh, for for existing arms control systems that that count the number of missiles that a, a state may have for instance or the number of main battle tanks or whatever it might be um, so that's one challenge the the other is possible cost um, whilst at the moment uh, the the focus tends to be on uh, developing lethal autonomous weapon systems that would be in themselves quite expensive 
So if we think about an autonomous version of, of the drones that we've become familiar with, for instance, those are, those are quite expensive pieces of kit and the support infrastructure that they need is also extensive and costly. They're much, they're much cheaper than manned aircraft. You know, it's, it's, the cost is relative here, but they're nevertheless um, not the sorts of things that are going to be within the capabilities of, um, of all but a relatively small number of states. But if you have um, the development of, of technologies such as um, swarms, um, where the artificial intelligence is kind of distribu distributed across a large number of small and cheap platforms, um, and there have been some notable experiments with, with swarming drones, for instance, um, then you could potentially be looking at things that are very small, uh, very cheap, you know, easily produced, um, and they could proliferate very widely, uh, potentially very quickly. Uh, and again, the technology that would be central to those things is, is the software and is things like 3D printing, um, if you were to, to, to use that as the basis for, for, for manufacturing these systems. And controlling that is is just extremely hard to do and very hard to imagine how you could do it. So there's a there's a yeah there's one debate is around can you construct a, an arms control regime of the sorts we've constructed in the past for different forms of weapons of mass destruction and for some forms of conventional weaponry. Um, or are you also as well as a legal form the legal framework here you're also looking to try to develop certain kinds of behavioral expectations um, that uh, that there is, you, you would try to establish behavioural norms and expectations with amongst states and, and other leading international actors, such that they uh, they they face different sorts of hurdles in acquiring and particularly in using these sorts of technologies. Um, so to 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 give a, you know, instances of past forms of military activity which states used to engage in quite widely, but which have now become kind of you know, taboo or, or just just socially seen as really beyond the pale, then um, piracy used to be quite a common state activity. Um, you know, great British naval heroes such as such as Drake and Raleigh are state-sponsored pirates. Um, very few states engage in piracy any longer. Uh, we've seen the development of of, of increasingly effective um, sort of moral condemnation of the use of child soldiers, uh, for instance. Um, again. It happens. There are state armies that use child soldiers, and there are certainly non-state armed groups that use that use child soldiers. But it is something that they often try to hide, uh, and it's something that they they receive a lot of moral moral opprobrium for doing. Um, so one of the area where we can also look is this sort of creation of a set of behavioural expectations around the the military roles of artificial intelligence that would hopefully try to keep them away from controlling the use of lethal force. That's really interesting. So if we focus now on what you touched on a little bit earlier, which is this idea of moral responsibility, how how might we think about moral responsibility in the context of an autonomous weapon which isn't directly controlled by anyone? Yeah, um, so assuming for the time being that the notion that holding the holding the weapon itself morally responsible doesn't make a whole lot of sense you know what are you going to do turn it off you know how do you punish such systems um, you know, if such systems did have levels of you know were self-aware and did have some kind of understanding of their own value then then punishing them might become plausible but that's that's you know not a not a, a debate that has any real traction at present because the technology involved for that is just so far distant then you're mainly looking at trying to find ways to hold human beings to account um, and there are there are two lines, I suppose, that, that tend to to be most common in those discussions. So the first is this idea of command responsibility, um, that the the military commanders who authorise the deployment and use of autonomous weapon systems would need to be held account for anything that those autonomous weapon systems do, um, and that clearly draws upon uh, the sorts of the sorts of situation we're familiar with already um, in terms of how military commanders are held accountable for the for the actions of their subordinates if those subordinates engage in war crimes for instance uh, but it stretches that um, in in a number of ways because it may well be the case that um, an autonomous you know the commander of uh, who takes the decision to deploy an autonomous weapon system is actually pretty unlikely to fully understand 
the technology that drives that system. They're pretty unlikely to fully understand the algorithms that the, the, the system uses, particularly if those if we were a point of technological advance sufficient whereby the machine itself is learning and adjusting its code as it goes to better perform its missions. Um, so for some people that idea of what we might call strict accountability or strict liability uh, in legal terms isn't especially attractive that you know irrespective of whatever this system does irrespective of whether it's behaved in a way that you could not possibly have predicted irrespective of um, any intentions you may have had or any benefits that may have arisen from this system's use if it goes wrong and commits something that looks like a war crime you are automatically responsible as though you yourself had committed that war crime um, that that notion is one which is um, quite heavily contested as to whether that's the appropriate way to do it. Um, so using command responsibility in the way that we're familiar uh, is one option and it's clearly got a role to play. The other is to suggest that the accountability actually has to get outside of military chains of command um, and whether we would be looking at mechanisms for holding the civilians who were involved in the design and development and testing perhaps of those weapon systems are the people who would also be held accountable so would you be holding account software designers, for example? Um, one, of the, one of the suggestions is that at the moment, uh, certainly in, in most of the Western world, then the manufacturers of military equipment have a degree of legal immunity. You can't sue them for the damage that their systems did. Um, there has been some suggestions you would take away that immunity. Um, you, could, you could engage in civil, civil legal action against the manufacturers of systems. Um, as a way of trying to diffuse uh, accountability and to encourage a degree of responsibility in uh, amongst engineers, software designers, equipment manufacturers, weapons companies uh, that at present they, they don't face. Mm -hmm. um, so this need for responsibility links very closely to a lot of your own work which is on this idea of uh, meaningful human control. Um, could you just talk us through a little bit about how we get, what, why meaningful human control is so important when it comes to responsibility um, and how we might think about meaningful human control? Yeah, so um, it's emerged over the last six or seven years, I, I think now, as, as being perhaps the, the centerpiece of regulatory debates. Um, there's a, uh, a branch of the United Nations, uh, the, the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, uh, which meets in Geneva, and it's been discussing lethal autonomous weapon systems for a number of years now, particularly within what's known as a group of governmental experts. Uh, and their, their discussions have revolved increasingly around the idea of meaningful human control. And what what they tend to mean by this is what would it mean for a human being to exercise some kind of meaningful control over an autonomous weapon system and how do we use that to close this account of this potential accountability gap you know either when systems malfunction or when accidents happen how do we hold human beings to account um, and how do we encourage a degree of caution and circumspection and um, in, in the use of autonomous weapons that the that, that states might engage in so they tend to focus upon this idea of you know what does it mean for that control to be meaningful um, so for instance if you are just monitoring a system um, you're not actually involved in in its decision making processes you're not having to green light choices that the system presents to you for instance um, then is that meaningful um i was sorry can i just jump in there is because you you might be forgiven for thinking there's kind of a contradiction there between the idea of the weapons themselves being autonomous which is part of the mm -hmm. definition of them and the fact that they're meaningfully controlled by someone how um how do you draw that fine distinction uh with difficulty is the is the short answer so um so yes yeah, so there is for example this idea of would what is called on the loop monitoring count as meaningful control by a human being um, if if what you are doing is is looking at and overseeing the decisions that those systems are taking um, you're not directly authorizing them to make those decisions they're making them autonomously then 
with a view to your terminating those systems, you know, stopping them from acting if they seem to be doing things that are inappropriate or illegal um, or immoral, if they are, are stepping outside of the parameters that have been set for that mission, then would you have some kind of kill switch to turn them off? Is that is that a sufficient sufficient level of meaningful human control? One of the one of the challenges we've seen in that regard is the the tendency that human beings have to defer to technologies, uh, particularly technologies that are are accurate um, and extremely and, and reliable the vast majority of the time. The slightly trivial but but illustrative example that most people have had some experience of is is in terms of um, slavishly following satnavs. Um, because 95-99% of the time perhaps it takes you the, the right way, gets you to the right place and um, it saves you a lot of, a lot of thinking on your own. Um, whereas there are instances of, you know, of people driving into, driving into ploughed fields where the sat-nav thinks there's a road, even driving into the sea um, or of you know, taking ridiculously inappropriate routes um, because the sat-nav sent me that way. Um, so human beings do have a problem with with exercising authority over technologies, and we've yeah, there, there are instances in the in the military arena where, in particular, military crews who don't really understand what the technology is, how it works, so find it much much harder to identify when it's going wrong, um, have have engaged in activities which have been recommended to them by the technology, uh, which have had catastrophic consequences, um, you know, including things like shooting down civilian airliners. Um, so that idea of meaningful human control often thought about in terms of yeah command responsibility is that a form of meaningful human control or in terms of some kind of oversight of the systems in action is that a form of meaningful human control and how you how you would write that into some kind of legal um, legal treaty so for instance we already have a set of rules usually um, under article 36 of the uh, first additional protocol to the Geneva Convention which makes it illegal to introduce weapons that could not discriminate between combatants and non-combatants, between permissible and forbidden targets. Um, so would, would that be, be enough um, to establish the idea of meaningful human control? Um, that all, you've, you've done your testing, you've created a, a testing regime for your system, which has shown that in the lab or on the test bench or in, the, in controlled exercise environments, this system can achieve that discrimination it's therefore fine to let it out in the wild, as it were. Uh, would that be meaningful human control? That's a, that's a long way away from you know, in-the-loop decision-making where you have to, whether the system may present you with options as to what it's going to do, um, which could include the use of lethal force, and a human being has to green light each and what, every one of those options. So it's a wide oh. spectrum, um, and that's one of the problems. One of the problems with the idea uh, is that it's, it's ideas of what is meaningful and what is control are widely discussed and debated uh, in the contemporary in the contemporary debate in places such as you know, such as the, the the group of governmental experts at Geneva in Geneva. And your own research has focused a lot on not the meaningful or the control bit, but how we conceptualise the human bit. So um, that that's quite a it's typically conceptualized in a very liberal kind of Western way of looking at things. Could you just talk us through what mm -hmm. broadly your your argument about that? Yeah, so so pretty much all the things we've we've talked about so far draw very heavily upon Western military and political experience. So you know the reference points I've given you: the Anglo-German arms race, the Cold War, um, our understanding of the, the purpose, the nature and purpose of the use of force uh, in international politics draws upon the way in which. The use of force has by and large been carried out by European North American states and the the strategic discourse, the legal discourse, um, the ethical and political discourse around those uses of force reflect those traditions. Um, so one of the things that which I think is, is, and that creates, as you say, an idea of a, of a human who would exercise this meaningful control, who is um, paradigmatically understood in terms of, of Western ideas of, of rationality, for instance. Um, and who would have a, a, a level of expertise and a mastery of this, these complicated discourses of strategy, um, of law, uh, of ethics, which draw very, very heavily upon Western traditions of thought and Western, Western historical experiences, and certainly the, the sorts of Western historical experiences the West likes, likes to tell about itself too. Um, 
whereas one of the things that that that, that neglects is it seems to me is that if we do develop autonomous weapon systems um, in the way in which we have used uh, you know, drones uh, up until now, it's much, it's very unlikely that these systems will be deployed in North America or Western Europe, certainly not first. Um, they are clearly being developed uh, with, with uses in non-Western parts of the world, uh, pretty, much, pretty much front and center, um, especially those systems which are, are potentially seen as useful for counterinsurgency or counterterrorism type operations. Um, and there's virtually zero interest uh, in the regulatory debate or in the strategic debate or even in the ethical debate about autonomous weapon systems, um, in what the perspectives and experiences are of the people who live in the places where, where key precursor technologies like drones have been most extensively used. Um, so there's almost no interest whatsoever uh, in understanding how these people have experienced things like drones uh, or other high technology um, forms of surveillance, some of it increasingly reliant upon artificial intelligence um, to do the analysis of that surveillance, um, how it is these people understand their relationship to these technologies, what kinds of ethical reference points um, we should use to assess when, how and if such technologies should be used, um, their appreciation for what it is like to to live a, a meaningful human life in the presence of these technologies. Um, and I think that's something which is, is seriously missing um, from, from the debate about autonomous weapon systems, that when we, when we think about meaningful human control, then, as you, as you said, there's a lot of discussion of what's meaningful and what's control. But the, the, the idea of, of who the human is that provides the reference point um, for, for, for assessing these systems is almost entirely taken for granted and, and um, almost wholly uncontested uh, in most of the discourse at present, certainly uh, in the key intergovernmental uh, fora where regulations are discussed. So typically in terms of, um, so West, Western ideas typically focus on um, a kind of uh, rights-bearing individual. What would be a different way of conceptualizing the human that might be used instead? Yeah, so one one way that we could potentially think about this, and it's it's hard to be it's hard to be more than to offer much more than generalities here, because one of the the things that's really really central to would be really central to developing this idea is you've got to do the empirical research, you've got to work with with the peoples who have who have experienced drones on a day to day basis. Um, you can't you can't you know impose our ideas about what they would say upon them. You've got to you've got to listen to them. But one area where this would come out is, is an idea of perhaps of relationality that whereby, and this is a very common part of a, of a whole range of non-Western forms of thought. It's a, it's a common to, to the thought systems of many indigenous peoples, for instance. It's central to, to Taoism, to Confucianism, to other major traditions uh, of non-Western philosophy. Uh, and this is the idea that the value that human beings have and their understanding of themselves as human beings and their place within the world is um, not because they are in the classic liberal sense you know a rights holder but that is something which is a a, a fact about them um, it defines their defines their subjectivity um, that instead their place in the world and their value within the world is understood in terms of the relations that they have to other uh, to other people or potentially indeed to other living things um, and in some systems of, of relationality to to people who who have lived in the past and to those who may live in the future and um, so you can have quite a complicated range of relational entanglements and our status as human beings shifts depending upon which particular constellation of relational entanglements we are operating within at any one time um, and that's a you know, that's a radically different philosophical basis for thinking about how um, about the moral status of relationships between human beings and technology, for instance. That's really interesting, and it's been a really interesting discussion in this podcast. Um, I'm just going to ask you one more question, if I may. Um, we talked about ethics and kind of the fact that there are some quite good ethical arguments about why autonomous weapons are really quite objectionable and then we essentially just accepted that that was impractical and we had to just accept them. Does that kind of concern you this idea that that in an international politics we just have to 
dismiss ethics and and just focus on what's practical or or how do you view that yeah i mean i i, I think there are powerful there are very powerful dynamics that are deep now pretty deeply entrenched in the debate about autonomous weapon systems that makes for example banning them seem to me unlikely but i you know my my ability as a crystal ball gazer is no better than anybody else's and predictions are prediction is a mugs game um but just because it's difficult of course doesn't mean you shouldn't try um and whether or not one can accept yeah we, we can achieve something that looks like a ban on lethal autonomous weapon systems i personally as i've said i'm skeptical about that but that doesn't mean that those people who are not skeptical about that or who believe that this is the absolutely most crucial thing we have to do are are in some sense wrong or uh, are engaged in some kind of you know quick quixotic um uh, escapade that is doomed to failure um, i sincerely hope that they aren't and that um something like that may be achievable but it also means that we have to have multiple multiple ways of engaging with with the idea of um lethal autonomous weapon systems we have and we have to keep pushing at the idea that these are really ethically significant uh, phenomena these are really important technologies and seeding the field to borrow that rand phrase uh, to those who want to make the argument that you know the, the the structural laws of international politics such as the security dilemma or the structural laws of capitalism that mean that technological advancement and enhancement is is unstoppable um, that we shouldn't you know we must not seed that field uh, we must continue to challenge and question and debate and push and demand good explanations and good arguments and good reasons as to why it is that we should we should pursue this particular technological path that at present we seem set upon uh, which looks to be toward you know, looks to be leading towards towards laws um so i don't think that i don't think there is a sense in which we set aside ethics i think we recognize that um in in all forms of human life in in many ways achieving good moral outcomes is difficult um and it requires good people to to work hard, um, whether that is in terms of you know practical political action, in terms of campaigning, or whether that's trying to trying to challenge the, the the way in which a debate is framed that makes it look like it's an inevitability, whether that's advocating for for the voices of the the most marginalised and the most vulnerable to be given uh, to be given space to be heard and to be to be weighted just as much as those who are in reality least vulnerable um, uh, and most powerful is I think a uh, a, a part of a part of participating in civil society it's a it's a part of being a being a citizen it's arguably even a part of being a human so yeah i'm i'm i may personally be skeptical about something like a ban but i'm i'm certainly not skeptical about the relevance or significance um of of ethical thinking to how we conduct international politics that's a really fantastic note to end on um, thanks so, no so much for speaking to us, Professor Williams. My pleasure. Really nice to talk to you.